Hello, good morning, and welcome to the Peace Alliance Hope Story Circle. It's a, been a difficult week for us, and we're really pleased to see all of you here today. And welcome to Peace On, your source for inspiring conversations and information from thought leaders across the spectrum on topics related to the strategies of building peace, fostering nonviolence, and creating a world that thrives, shifting our understanding toward empathy, compassion, and connection. I'm Terry Mason. I'm on the board of the Peace Alliance, and I'm joined to facilitate today by Liz Gannon Braden, who is also on our board, and Yelena Popovich, who is our teaching peace and schools lead. And our special guest today is Darren Detweiler. He has a very tender story to share. Um, and especially yeah. given the things that have occurred this week with the shooting of Aldi and other places over the past week and a half, we've all sort of felt sh shaken and rocked. And we're feeling very deeply. And I think Darren's story is also going to help, help us feel very deeply. And we're looking forward to having time together to process and to be together and to support one another at this time. Because Darren's story is so tender, we've chosen to flip it a little bit. Instead of starting with a meditation, we're gonna have Darren share his story first. And then Yelena will lead us in a meditation before we go into the breakout rooms to bring us in and help us be grounded for that time. So Darren, with that, I'm gonna invite you to share your story. Thank you very much. Uh, so my story has roots that began many decades ago. I think about how certain newspaper headlines are frozen into our minds and most often they pertain to tragedy. I remember vividly the 1979 headlines about the Three Mile Island incident involving a nuclear power plant meltdown in Pennsylvania on the other side of the country from where I lived. Even though I was only 11 years old at that time, it created in me an awareness of an invisible threat, something from which we you know, cannot necessarily hide. I also remember not too many years later, the 1986 Spatial Challenger explosion. For me, again, frozen in, in my mind is that we're still very vulnerable. That there's always opportunities for, for flaws and, 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 and catastrophic failure. That same year, I was a senior in high school and I had no plans whatsoever, really, after I graduated. Um, at a, a school career fair, a Navy recruiter asked me what I wanted to do. I told him I wanted to test myself to see what I was truly capable of doing. Uh, I pushed myself to the limits and, and you know, really find out what, what I was made of. His suggestion was to operate a nuclear reactor on a Navy submarine, and I did. Uh, I graduated from high school, I joined the Navy, uh, went through some of the toughest schools the military had to offer, and by the time I was 21, I had graduated. I had reported to a submarine and qualified as a nuclear submarine interim supervisor. I also had bought my first house, met my first wife, and became a stepfather to her son from a, from a previous relationship. Two years later, I became a father to our son, Riley. I justified being out to sea on the submarine by telling myself that I was making the world a safer place for Riley and my stepson, and um, that I would spend the rest of my life making up 
lost time with them. I left the Navy shortly before Riley turned one. Six months later, I would face another invisible threat. I couldn't help but notice the news regarding an E. coli outbreak at Jack in the Box fast food restaurants near Seattle. I had never even heard of E. coli before that. My family and I lived about 90 miles north of Seattle. Our first thoughts were that we would just be safe if we avoid eating hamburgers in Seattle. Um, then came a Wednesday I'll never forget. The day I found a note at Riley's daycare center about another child there who had tested positive for E. coli. In 1993, my 16-month-old son, Riley, was just starting to talk and to, to walk. Um, he was you know, the child I thought we wouldn't have to worry about because he'd never eaten a hamburger. But that didn't matter, however, as he became ill with E. coli, not directly, obviously, from eating a food any food contaminated with a foodborne pathogen, but because of person-to-person -person contamination from another child in a daycare center. Nothing I did in the Navy, all the things I did to push myself to see what I was made of, nothing prepared me completely for this challenge and for the ones ahead. The next few torturous weeks can perhaps be best summarized with a few images burned in my memory. One image is a look in my son's eyes as he sat on my lap while I held him in his hospital bed the day he was first admitted. He wanted comfort from his baby bottle and he wasn't allowed to have one because he had barely any renal output. Um, and he must have thought that his IV bag hanging at his bedside on a stand thing was his bottle. And I'll never forget him crying, Baba, Baba. The second image is from being barely able to recognize my son's face peeking out from under the blankets and the straps in a basket as he was being loaded onto a helicopter uh, to be airlifted to Children's Hospital in Seattle about 90 miles away. The third image is from Seattle Hospital um, Pediatric Intensive Care Unit. But a day after he was transferred to the Children's Hospital, doctors had to perform exploratory surgery, only to find that the majority of his intestines had been destroyed by the disease. The nurses prepared us before we were allowed to go back into the hospital room. And walked in there and was only barely able to, to see, you know, my this little boy body, this little tuft of blonde hair my son's face as his body was surrounded by wires and tubes and equipment. I don't even know what it was all called, but it was clear what, what it was. Um, he had been medically induced into a coma after that surgery. And um, going to his bedside, they had uh, put Vaseline on his eyeballs and taped his eyes closed in order to protect them during this time. The final image in my mind comes from when I watched two men carrying my young son in a white coffin on a cold February morning, a coffin that was far smaller than any coffin should ever be. The, um, 
the day after my son's death, President Clinton called my phone to express his condolences. He had actually been on Air Force One out to Seattle and was going to visit us. Um, we had talked to him live via television on a town meeting that aired while my son was in the hospital. He asked what we could do. And I told the president 30 years ago that I wanted to be part of the solution because I couldn't live with myself if I failed to do anything while other parents would go on to live with a chair forever empty at the family table because of something like this. I, um, I became a high school teacher at the time. I also served uh, as a consultant and later as a special advisor um, Pointed to two terms to serve the USDA Secretary of Agriculture. I literally flew back and forth between Seattle and Washington, D.C. Uh, to, to work on this issue. On the 20th anniversary of the outbreak, I had journalists in my classroom as my students presented their work on reform in America with a focus on food safety. One of the journalists had mistakenly spilled the beans about my background and my students. I hadn't told them about my history on this subject. And Right then, one of the students asked, if, if, if you're doing all this back then, and it is still such an issue today, why are you just a teacher? That really hit me. Um, later that year, I moved to Boston and would go under my doctorate, become a professor of food policy. Along the way, I've helped the USDA and the FDA improving food safety policies. And I presented before hundreds of audiences and written countless articles, as well as books on the subject of food safety. But you know, here I am, and I'm, I'm looking back 30 years ago. At that time, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I honestly thought there would be some change in science or technology or law and policy. But what we've seen in the last decades is this endless cycle of crisis and reform. Each year, 48 million Americans get sick, 128,000 are hospitalized, and some 3,000 people consumers, mostly children, die of foodborne pathogens. Over the years, I've had to reevaluate what I was doing. And I think my story is that of perhaps consistently never giving up because my son didn't have a chance to give up. So many like him are not given an opportunity to, you know, to go down certain paths. Um, even if they recover, they don't necessarily fully recover uh, from a foodborne pathogen. Today, I know there will never be an end to pathogens in our food. There'll never be an end to E. coli. But we can change the culture around the, the future of food safety. I think that to do so will require a Herculean, a Herculean effort, an enormous amount of work, strength, and courage. And I, I look at this idea every time I'm doing this work you know, perhaps I can inspire, help those who are out there to do something. And, and all the technology we talk about, all the, the artificial intelligence, machine learning, it can't do anything about the very human side of these and, and other preventable events. And yeah, obviously the news, especially of late about school shootings, my heart goes out to the parents and families of the victims at Uvalde and so many countless other school or mass shootings just this year alone. But for those parents who lost children over the years and other school shootings like Sandy Hook and Parkland, they're seeing the same thing over and over again. 
it can become this overwhelming sense of futility. Nothing's going to change year after year. You know, I see so many outbreaks and talk with so many families after they bury a child to mostly preventable failures in food safety. I feel that I must at least try to make a difference. Sometimes you have to believe that not going backwards is at least not doing something. And maybe going forward is a journey, but I know there's so many others on this journey. There's those who don't have a voice, those who don't want to have a voice, those who, who, who want to have a voice, but they just, they don't, they don't know what to do. They don't have a place to, to be a part of this. Uh, if my voice provides assistance, it is to me a sense of, of wearing a uniform again in terms of service beyond self. And I've been fortunate to have been part of a large team looking forward into the face of these kinds of invisible threats and setbacks. You know, this is what I do, and um, this is how I'm still a father to my son. This work, it takes time and has long been a part of my grieving process. I, I do worry about people who give up because it's so insurmountable to think about change. You know, many parents think of this as binary. You know, they want, they want to go from having this to not having this, from, from, from one to zero, from 100% to zero, and that's just not going to happen. And it becomes this, this daunting challenge to think, you know, what can I do? But there's more than just the issue at hand. I sometimes think, I very often, I mean, for many years, I've thought about this one line from a Queen song from the Highlander. You guys remember the movie Highlander with uh, Sean Connery? Um, there's a soundtrack by Queen to that movie. And in this one line where the main character outlives his wife, uh, the line is, it's always a rainy day without you. And I think about that, that idea that I can recognize that it's rainy outside, but I can be productive inside. And I think about how everyone deals with tragedy differently. And I often feel, I often feel that you know, we have to remember that people are not just dealing with tragedy they're, they're they're still having to be parents to their children and partners to their spouses and, and feed their pets and, and go to work and be a part of a community and and, and, the, and at the same time live their own lives personally i've had to look at you know when i do this work it's me spending time with my son and i think about how yes i lost my son but i never want my son if he was, if I was to meet him in heaven, to say that he lost his father. I do whatever I can to help, you know, find some meaning, not only to what happened, but to that very small dash between 1991 and 1993 on his gravestone. Even with all the improved new policies and technologies, America's safest in the world food supply is far from perfect. The, the um, the so-called food safety culture that has grown from this event that took my son's life should be to make food safety better, not to create a profitable culture around the issue of food safety. There's so many books and conferences and magazines and organizations and new jobs that have been created, all this guise of, of, of improving food safety. And I hope that good comes from this. But the reality is for three decades, the numbers have not even changed 1%. Literally, the CDC estimates from 30 years ago that I spouted earlier are the same exact estimates that there are today. Same exact numbers. 
how effective is a culture of change if there's actually no change? You know, invisible threats are not always thousands of miles away from us. They're not always just brought to our attention solely through a newspaper story. Catastrophic failures are not exclusive to undertakings far from those of normal daily activities. And inevitably, no matter, no matter how hard we try to avoid being at risk, families are often vulnerable to outside threats, great and small. I'm sitting here, I'm sick with COVID. I've had all the vaccines and the boosters and I've isolated and I've, I've, I've been so diligent in this and I, I, I you know, I, here I am sick with COVID as of, you know, the last week. Um, I'm trying to be isolated from the world and from my wife. Um, and I've been sick with, I've had salmonella. I got salmonella at a food safety conference one time. Um, it's amazing how many people get, how many food safety experts get sick from foodborne pathogens at food safety conferences. It's just, it's a numbers game kind of a situation. But the point is, is that we can't live our lives completely in fear of these threats. And when these threats impact us, we have to find a way of moving beyond with them, whether it is our own individual acceptance and how we survive individually, how we survive in our relationships, how we survive in our families, how we survive in all the different hats that we wear. And we have to find smaller goals, smaller achievements. We can't say that it is ending this or nothing, that it is, it is this, this insurmountable, this, this almost impossible goal, or there's no reason for me to be involved and, and to, to have some kind of an impact on and what we do going forward. We have to find small successes. We have to find ways to do things. I know people that they get on stage at events and they talk about the history, the story of their child, or they, they're angry and they point blame at what's going on. And I get that. It's definitely part of the grieving process. You know, back 30 years ago, I was actually, you know, I was like the hated, most hated person by the meat industry. I was labeled literally as the crying mom who wore pants or the, the dirty hairy of the meat industry, um, that I brought a too emotional story to the issue of food safety. And um, those same companies today invite me to their events. They invite me to be part of that discussion, just to have a seat at that table. Uh, they pay my expenses. Um, they, they promote me. And um, they, they, they buy my book. They offer to, to, to have me be as part of their training events. Today, the culture is different. We do see that these are, are, are stories that need to be told, that we need to go beyond the numbers and the data, the statistics and the graphics and charts and make sure that there's real faces and real stories and names behind the statistics. And that this is how we impact the human side of things. This is how we have an impact on executives making decisions that go beyond cost benefit analysis and return on, on investment. That understanding the true burden of disease, understanding the very human 
element of things is what helps us look at things beyond just big data and um, the analytics side of things. Um, and, um, you know, it, it's, it's, I've had 30 years to work on this. And every time I talk to a family that's going through this within weeks after they bury a child, I realize that they can't be at the same place I am today. It's going to take time. Um, it's, it's too raw after an event to start thinking about 30 days, 30 weeks, 30 months, let alone 30 years after an event where you'll be in terms of the big picture of things. But um, I do try to offer a, a, a voice of experience in that um, it is possible to, to find a role within the solution in terms of finding not only peace within yourself, but trying to find some element of, of uh, supporting the bigger changes that are needed ahead. And I think that this is a point where I'm gonna go ahead and stop my story. There are obviously many more details to share, but I think that the most important element that I want to convey is that today, 30 years later, literally, we're coming upon the 30th anniversary of this event. I'm at a completely different place than I was 30 years ago. And yet I still found myself, I still find myself to be exactly in the same space where I was. Um, it is a weird duality of, of a, a Groundhog Day-ish element. And then I can recognize the change. And yet I feel shuddered by the stagnation of, 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 um, of no change, but I don't give up. And I thank everyone for allowing me to, to, uh, to tell my story. Thank you, Darren. So with that, I'm going to ask Elena to come off mute and lead us in a meditation and then we'll go into the breakout rooms. Thank you, Darren. Um, for your very tender story, and thank you all for being here. Yeah, I invite you um, to really notice what do you need right now. And it might be that closing the eyes might not be the most supportive thing in this moment. So um, if if that's not, please have your eyes open. And one of the things actually I want to invite us in is to actually ground ourselves a little bit in a space you are at. And maybe just looking around a space you are in. And, you know, finding something that gives you the sense of grounding. And maybe that is your feet on the floor, just really being rooted with your eyes and looking at something that is grounding as well, feeling your feet, feeling your seat, feeling your heartbeat. 
what is something that supports you, perhaps just being among others right now. Being here is enough. You want to offer yourself a soothing touch on your chest, your belly, your heart, your cheek. Knowing that you just being here supports others too. Now many of you have been in this peace building work for so long. Now many of you probably tired, change, no change. How can you support yourself in this moment? Finding your breath. Allow yourself, if there is a loud exhale. If there is a tear, just feeling it. Sometimes just being in silence with each other. There is comfort in that. I invite you to feel the feet be in your own body, in your own experience with your own breath right now. Already gently opening your eyes, you might want to might want to Stand up, shake, whatever your body 
neat. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Darren, again for sharing your story. Thank you, Yelena. So we are going to go into our breakout rooms. Um, and remember, our agreements are to listen with your heart, to speak from your heart, to say just enough so others have an opportunity to share. And as Yelena said, if it's time to be quiet together and support each other, that's okay too. Whatever you feel you need at the time. And this community is always very loving and giving and I'm grateful for all of you being here to share this today. So I'm going to pause the recording and then we'll go into the breakout rooms and when we come back, we'll see what's come up for people. Welcome back everyone. Thank you for being here. So taking a deep breath, who would like to share anything that came out of your conversation in the rooms? Sure, Angie, you're on mute. Can you unmute yourself? Okay, can you hear me now? There you are, yeah. Okay, I didn't get to talk about all the things I would love to talk about because it would take probably two or three hours. Aww. But I did want to say I was really taken by the, what did Darren say? Shattered by the stagnation of no change. And, and that will stay with me forever. Um, especially since as we get ready to go through the Poor People's Campaign here and the director here, Zilla Wesley, talks about we should be hollering and screaming um, and we, because we know what the impact is and we don't need to sit back and let these things happen. We need to be about change. And I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. And I also want to say one message that I got from Darren that I asked at the last minute, I love salads of all kind, but I told him I go to Old Bone Pan and they had this big sign that says, you know, uncooked food is a hazard to your house, you eat your health, eat it at your own risk. And salads really, we should not be doing salads out in public at places, no matter how delicious they look, because they will make you sick. And I have gotten sick several times, mm. but I stopped eating salads out. Mm. Okay. And I'm going to stop unless Darren wants to add to that. Thank you, Angie. Thank you, Darren. I want to say a few words about despair. Okay. I own it. I, I'm there. Um, <laughs> maybe half the time. Fortunately, only half. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time writing about hope. Uh, about possibilities for change, about people who are changing, who have implemented change. And this morning I wept because I watched one of those goal cast videos about a teacher who did just exactly that. She changed an entire classroom of brown 
youth who were from the hood and gangs and were desperate and she got them to graduate and go to college. <laughs> and I'm going to put the link in the in the chat and I really want everybody to watch that because I identify with the shooter. Yeah. I have, I have been angry and suicidal and never expected to live beyond 18. Um, and I have, <laughs> obviously. Um, and uh, I, I've sworn I will not give up. I, I believe in the quantum of goodness that you know one person doing one act of goodness one act of joy affects the entire humanity um that's that's hard to believe i mean i i doubt it myself but it's that's it, uh, the only thing that keeps me going <laughs> it's the only thing and and it leads me to be willing to be shot, to be the victim, uh, if it accomplishes a greater good. That's all I got. Thank you, David. Add something. Um, you know, we, we. By the way, uh, Liz, the the flying buttress story was was incredible and i think it's important that you know people realize that you're not doing this alone um, um when, when i was a a teacher uh, i taught very at-risk students and uh you know they think they're so tough they got all these different problems and issues they're dealing with and it's very tough in the learning environment and then one year I had a student who was paralyzed from the neck down join mm -hmm. my class because um, the the traditional high school wouldn't be a fit for him they literally um, they wouldn't adjust to allow him to to fit into to, to to their their classrooms and he had far lived already his life expectancy and he just wanted to be a normal teenager and brought him into my class. And some of these other students who thought they had issues realized that their issues are not the same as other people's issues. And they could start to see things from a different perspective. And they started working with him on projects. We did a canned food drive. We did a fundraiser. We did all these different things. And they were so supportive of him. They even helped him. He was able to move his thumb a little bit. They built him this arm on his wheelchair that held this camera. We found a digital camera that had a remote control and they could put the remote control. They even had to figure out like to put a uh, like Velcro on the back of it so it could stick in his hand more. So he could be in included in our in our, our forensic science class because he could he could he could move his chair and he could he could basically take photos uh, uh, on his own and even though that was all he was doing was just moving his thumb he had ownership of that but it was the students who came to his aid and did this and um, a few years later when he died I was invited to his funeral his is the set I've only been to two funerals in my life that of my son and that of this child this student I had the number of his classmates that, that years after they graduated came back, went to his funeral 
um, really spoke volumes in terms of how someone can come into your life, and make an impact and allow you to see the issues around you from a different perspective and really make an impact on people's lives that you maybe not be able to measure. And if it's um, seeing how they came back for this kid's funeral um, is the way to measure that. I am so fortunate um, to, to, to receive this kind of sense of, of, of hope from, from, from someone who one day I didn't even know he existed and the next day he became someone so important in that classroom and uh, in, in the, the next two years in my life. And it really made a difference. So don't ever think that your best approach is to shut out the rest of the world and assume that you and you alone are there to face what's going on. Thank you, Darren. Well, we're gonna begin to wind down and come to a close. I am putting a series of links in the chat. The Hope Story Circles are brought to you by the Peace Alliance. The website is peacealliance.org and our Peace On podcasts are also available there for these Hope Story Circle calls and other calls that we have. There's also a link about the Hope Story Circles if you wanna share it with others and invite others to join us here. We also have the Blueprint for Peace. It's a single action you can take to notify all of your elected officials that you support policies related to peace building and violence reduction. A link to information about HR 1111, our Department of Peace Building legislation that we support, among others. We are a small nonprofit. We appreciate donations of any size. We have a current campaign going to raise $20,000 in 2022 and have 22 new monthly donors in 2022. So we invite you to participate in that and share it with your network, your personal and professional network. There's also the calendar of events on the, on the website um, where you can find the information about our Hope Story Circles, our monthly national calls, our empathy circles, Department of Peace Building calls, and everything else that we have going on. So we invite you to continue to join us here and we're grateful to have you here today and liz i'll hand it to you to bring us to a close darren um, i want to tell you i was going to do a whole different closing till you just told that story and then something arose i was also you know middle school i was a middle school teacher for many years and i had that experience that you mentioned in the beginning of people would say to me you're so smart, why are you only a teacher, right? That's an interesting you know, thing as a teacher. And back in the 80s, it, it, was, a, it was a very, in New York, it, it, it was in Queens. Queens is so diverse, right? It was a really diverse community, but it was definitely lower class, right? Like what we call, right, lower middle class. Um, and I would teach the kids, base, I had to teach social studies because that's what the state of New York called it, but I really was teaching them peace building, right? When you teach war and peace, right? I try, and, um, and I was teaching them these ways of hope and these processes for change. And one day, one of the boys raised his hand and he said, doesn't it bother you that we think you're a fool? Doesn't it bother you that when we leave here, we make fun of you? And I said, no. I said, it doesn't bother me at all. And, and at that time, right, I'm we're a New Yorker and um, I love baseball. 
and Don Mattingly was the big baseball player in New York at the time. I said, when Don Mattingly gets up to bat, if he gets three out of 10, he's like, that's a good year for him. I said, there are 30 of you. I said, if I get three out of 10 of you this year, I'll be fine. But of course I was lying to myself, right? And I wasn't okay. And every day when I would come in, I would like when I would read the paper and I loved People Magazine because, you know, there were all these those stories like you talked about the the class that made the the wheelchair for the kid. There were all those stories. And every day I would bring them in and show them a story and show them a story and show them a story. And the last day of school, he came up to me and he had this large manila envelope and he was just a brilliant artist. And I opened it up and it was a hand holding a rose that was just starting to open. And he wrote on it, thank you for never giving up on me. And I still have it. I still have the drawing. I still have the rose. And I think you're right. So many of us here, right, are working for the grand scale of change. And I do think it's important to do that. And I feel called to it myself, right? But the importance of those little interactions where we just meet another person from our heart and with love is so important. So I just invite you to um, care for yourself this week. Um, to take rest when you need to get rest, but never forget that beautiful tender heart that keeps you connected with people and our larger story. I love you all. Thank you, Liz. Feel free to come off mute and say goodbye, folks. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you you so much. I forgot to thank you for your story. Thank you so much for your story. Thank you, Darren. Beautiful. Thank you, Darren. I wish we could spend more Beautiful. time with you. You should come back. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I agree. I agree. Lovely. I've got connections. I agree. Thank I agree. you so much, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mary, Liz, Alina, thank you all. Thank you for joining us today at Peace On. We hope that it inspires you to engage in dialogue in your larger community. Peace On is brought to you by the Peace Alliance, found at peacealliance.org.